Well, hello, America, and welcome to the Robin Walters Show. Under the auspices, as they would say, of Red Sky Radio. Thank you so much for listening, for your support, and everything else that makes this show happen. Uh, you know, I used to, and meaning for about 15 years, I started every program with good news, tried to end with good news. In between, we'd say, well, it's an e-ticket ride, hang on, buckle up. And that part of it is still true. I haven't always started with good news. I do still try to end with good news. But I'm going to start with some good news today because I actually have a little bit. It's just a little, but it's worth something, and I want to share it. First of all, um, and this may seem totally irrelevant, but I love it when there's someone who does not have to take a stand and who does take a stand on something for God and who is a luminary. It is somebody who is well-known, traditionally well-liked. In other words, somebody who has nothing to gain by standing up for God, and in the public square, maybe everything to lose. So most of you know that I hail from Michigan. I graduated uh, my bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan. Yeah, I still root for them. Uh, in the sports. I don't think that'll likely change until they just go too wacko and there's nobody else to root for. Well, anyway, as many of you know, Jim Harbaugh has been the coach of the Michigan football team now for quite a number of years. And with great expectations, there's been great disappointment year after year after year. Some of us wondering, well, how's he going to keep his contract? And if he doesn't, so be it. But last year, he actually beat Ohio State. It's sort of like it doesn't matter what your record is. As long as you beat Ohio State, you can keep your job. But the man did something else last year and this year, which just thrills me. He, without being provoked, without being asked, took an open public position on his support for pro-life. He took uh, an anti abortion position. He was against abortion, but he's really pro-life. And it would cause problems in Ann Arbor. But you know what? It doesn't matter what you do. You can get away with it as long as you beat Ohio State. That's why I think he, I mean, I don't think he thought, well, if I can only beat Ohio State, I can start speaking openly about things that a lot of students, a lot of people don't like. No, he's his own man. And then he was heralding the reversal of Roe v. Wade, which a lot of people didn't like, but he's under contract, can't really be fired for that. It's not a football problem. And after all, he finished the last year beating Ohio State. So this year, oh, I love this. I just love it. Become my favorite sports personality throughout the country. He couldn't decide which quarterback to use in game one or game two. So he's got two quarterbacks vying for uh, position, McCarthy and McNamara. So 
he started McNamara in game number one, which Michigan won handily, but it was an easy game. But he, McNamara, didn't play that great. And he said he was going to start the other person in the second game, no matter how well the first person did. So at a news conference, the reporters are saying, what kind of strategy is this, coach? That you've got two potential starters and you're going to have one start one game and no matter how well he does, you're going to start the other one in the second game. Is this a new strategy? They'd never heard of it. And so what is Harbaugh's response? He quotes from Scripture. That's from Ecclesiastes about how you sow your seed of this kind and that kind, for who knows which one will come up. So what the what he got from from the book of Ecclesiastes is try all your quarterbacks. You don't know which one is going to germinate, bloom, and yield great fruit. You don't know. So try them all. Well, all in this case is two. The third quarterback, I think, as a freshman, there's not even consideration. So he was taking a play, if you will, out of God's playbook. The wisdom of Solomon manifested in the book of Ecclesiastes. It blew the reporters away. And after the second game, he said, "I know now I know. I know which one is the most productive. We've planted both. And now we know. I, and I love this. I, you know, I love coming across applications of the word to situations where people don't think there could possibly be any application. But guess what? I am not a football coach, especially not at a, an elite school, an elite football school, where you're going to get quoted and followed and listened to and maybe copied by a lot of people. Well, it doesn't stop there. I did not watch Saturday's game against Hawaii, which was another easy school. But the fact of the matter is that now the reporters, my son who watched it, said this was amazing, Dad. He said they, the reporters commented on the air about Harbaugh's biblical basis for determining which quarterback is going to emerge. How do I do this? This is the way to do it. To plant them both, not just to play one for five minutes, another one for five minutes, go, but no, no, no. That wasn't what it was. So they they discussed that on the air. And then my one of my sons said that was when one of the other commentators then felt bold enough to apply another biblical scripture to the situation, or at least what he thought was a biblical scripture. I don't even know what it was. I, I didn't watch the, the program, and I didn't actually ask my son which one it was. Only, though, to say that later on in the program, yet a third commentator, hearkening back to the discussion about Harbaugh relying on the book of Ecclesiastes to give him direction in determining which quarterback to use, this third commentator, 10 minutes, whatever, a, a significant period of time into the program, when nobody's talking about that anymore, came out with another comment and some sort of oblique biblical reference as well. And I thought, this 
is what biblical leadership looks like. You aren't paid to do that. You aren't called to do that in the secular, in the natural. But you stick your head up, you stick your head out, and you speak God's word into a situation where God's word never, ever, ever seems to grace it unless they're praying in the locker room or it's in South Bend and uh, they're doing uh, Hail Mary prayers at halftime at Notre Dame. I mean, Harbaugh is making Notre Dame look like a bunch of pagans. And I was thrilled last year when I went back to my alma mater. It happened to be on September 11th, but they had a bagpipe player playing Amazing Grace, a young choir of girls from um, uh, Detroit, I think, were singing Oh Happy Day, which is has a biblical basis to it. I'm getting goosebumps again thinking about the school that I went to that was so far left. It was left of Fidel Castro. I had to punch my way through a strike line to get into an, e- an e- economics class one time. I mean, gosh, God, are you doing a work here? I hope so. But my point here is that this person who had no obligation, not paid to do that, paid to do everything but that, actually, speaks out, and what does he do? He launches an exchange before millions of people on TV between commentators commenting on and actually complimenting him on his biblical wisdom that he exercised in determining which quarterback to use. Now, needless to say, I'm excited about this because this is my team, and now I've got a real heartfelt reason to root other than just simply nostalgia. And honestly, if I heard a coach from who knows, pick a school, Southern Methodist, I don't really care what school is, do what Harbaugh did, they'd be my favorite for the rest of the year because I want to see God get the glory. Because what I trust is that as, as Harbaugh has opportunities to speak to millions after a televised game in which I certainly hope they win, that he will be faithful in bringing up the name of God again and again and just let all the people twist and and squirm in their underwear that can't stand hearing about it. But then there's those millions who couldn't really give a rip one way or other. And if Harbaugh's find a godly way to win the championship and beat Ohio State, uh, God bless them is what they'll say. Then we're all for the Bible too. This is just, sorry I took so much time on this, but it's exciting. But but the bigger point is you have no idea whatever pulpit God has put you in. Everybody has a pulpit. Everybody has a podium. Everybody has a microphone. Some people's microphone is bigger than others. Harbaugh's definitely bigger than this one. But you've got one. And the point I'm making is if you use it, you have no idea what impact what you say will have downstream. I mean, I'm thrilled when I get an email and somebody say, well, I got a program that somebody else sent to me and you said something that really did this. Well, I'm thrilled about that. I, you know, if I can reach people one at a time, then so be it. One at a time it'll be. But in this particular case, he's reaching millions. Okay, I have one other thing of some good news that I just want to report. But it's also bad news. As you've heard me talk 
about how nobody who cares anything about their children or grandchildren would have them in government schools. Unless you have such a, re- a crazy calling that that child can stand up and be a difference, then you send them. But for the most part, they get wiped out many, many more times than they end up converting others. They tend to sink to the lowest common denominator, not raised to the others. They're not Harbaugh's when they're 5, 6, 8, 9, 10 years old. No. There are those times when a child can speak something in school that will move people, but it seldom moves a teacher. It might move a few other students, but most of the time they sink. They're intimidated. They're afraid. They want to get good grades. They don't want to get hauled in the, into the superintendent's or the principal's office, which is happening all the time now. If anybody stands up against BLM, Antifa, LGBTQ, RSTUV, WXYZ, critical race theory, the 1619 Project, go right on down the line. You're throwing the kids to the lions. There are two schools, however, I'm sorry, two states who sit at the top of something that's brand new in American policy reporting from the Heritage Foundation. They created their first ever, when I trust that it's going to be an annual event, Educational Freedom Report Card. Educational Freedom Report Card. Because they now consider it necessary to help guide parents who either say they cannot have a child in private school or won't for whatever reason, how to get to the better government schools, better being a only a relative word. Those states, this is probably no surprise, the number one state for educational freedom in the United States, barring none, is Florida. Thank you, Ron DeSantis. What a great governor. Who I might add, I'm thrilled the other day, the report comes out that he is sending planes full of illegal immigrants to uh, Martha's Vineyard, where Obama lives. He spends his summers on Martha's Vineyard. So he gets to see all the illegals that this stupid jack has launched with his border policy, stopped by Trump, doubled down upon by Biden, letting him in like crazy. So they're getting to see what it's like now in Lori, uh, Beetlejuice, Lightfoot's, uh, Chicago and in L.A. and Washington, D.C. and New York City where they can't stand having all these illegals imported into their city. They want them to stay in Florida and Texas. They want them to stay in those red states. They don't want them coming to the blue states and adding to the blue state woes. I love it. Just dump hundreds, if not thousands of illegals on the Martha's Vineyard, run the property values down about 85%, cause the conniptions there, let the the left-wing, predominantly white elitist snobocrats that occupy that place deal with a very problem that they've created and have not directly created, actively support. I love it. But anyway, back to the Freedom Report. So Florida, without question, is number one, followed closely by Arizona, my home state. At the bottom, this is just really amazing. Well, you know, at the bottom are the, are the usual suspects, New Jersey, New York, California. I don't even need to go into that. 
But sadly, Tennessee is a state that's being attacked largely because of an influx of left-wing Democrats from California. Texas Tech University now has to uh, is investigating their on-campus drag show. Uh, they, and they say they don't. Well, you know what? I don't want to go any, any further. The fact of the matter is, Tennessee is a good state, but the devil's after it, big time, and he's sending people from California there to do his work. That's where they're coming from. That's a, that's the state that actually went down in its support from Trump, owing to uh, <clears throat> left wingers from California moving into that state. But the fact of the matter is, virtually no place seems to be safe anymore for our children. And a disturbing little thing, I'm going to just give a little public warning here. I have spent two decades vacationing with a lot of fun and enjoyment on a place very near and dear to my heart, Mackinac Island in Michigan. The island that's just nothing but horses. A magical place, sort of a, an equest, adult's equestrian Disneyland. But it's being taken over, and the attempt is very clear by the LGBTQRSTUVWXYZ community, the agenda. They're hosting their first ever queer pride festival on this island, which has only 400 and some permanent residents. And they've made it clear in the publication here going on, in addition to their bar crawl and all the debauched, depraved behavior, that simply are the defining characteristics of that community, that they're now going to hold bi-weekly coffee hours. Every other week they're going to have coffee hours to support queer networking on this island, conversations with business owners. It's clear. The queers took over Provincetown, Massachusetts. They took over Key West. They take over the nice places. And Hawaii, they take them over because, after all, if you're going to hell, why spend, it in, why spend your time on earth in northern Manitoba? You wouldn't do that. So they're bringing in a pride festival here, which is so out of character. But they're highlighting Bentley James, a drag performer from Lansing, voted Michigan's top drag performer, and Emma Sapphire, who was recently named Miss Michigan Best Professional Drag Queen of 2022. I'm telling you right now, the island is no longer safe for your children. And to protest today, I called the Mackinac Island Tourist Bureau because of my connection with the community when I found this out just last week. Twice they hung up on me and told me I need to keep my opinions to myself. That is a quote. Keep my opinions to myself. I wanted to just say, hey, lady, you don't know me very well. In fact, why don't you turn into my podcast and you'll hear exactly what I'm going to say because I wasn't going to say this, what I'm doing right now, until this lady hung up on me twice. Because they're all about money and, and queer political correctness. And sadly, another beautiful spot is, gonna, is in the process of headed down a rat hole after they try to take over the schools. Okay, enough about that. But only to say it's happening everywhere. On an island of only 450 Permanent residents? Wow. Well, okay, quickly. California, gosh, how sick can this state get? How low can it go? 
they rolled out their abortion.ca.gov. They spent a million bucks just on the website. Who that look? I, I I think at one point I spent a couple thousand dollars for a first class website. Not California. They need to spend a million dollars on a website and two hundred million to support abort. Two hundred million to kill babies. How about that safe, rare, and legal crap we heard from Bill and Hillary, which we knew was a lie. There's no lie anymore. Gavin Gruesome is out to shed more blood on the soil of California than Manasseh ever did in Israel, and for which Israel was judged, and the repentance of Josiah could not change God's mind and heart towards judging the nation, and he did and did so harshly. That's what they're doing. Abortion tourism. This is so from the pit of hell. I think Biden and Newsom will be bunkmates in hell, trying to throw water on the flames from each other's mattress. It's just incredible. And the attacks against anybody who would oppose this, I mean, Biden's speech from the pit of hell, his demonic speech, uh, with a with a deep red background and his rage, I mean it was just Satan lit on fire. And then and what does he do? He gives space to others who would say the same things, like this complete idiot moron Hank Johnson. Of course, he's a democrat from Georgia who's calling parents who come to school board meetings and complain. All you got to do is complain. You are therefore a, quote, MAGA Republican, and you are therefore your activity of complaining about a school at a school board meeting to Hank, no brains, no morals Johnson, that makes you an equivalent to those who entered the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Everything goes back to January 6th. It's because it's all they got, and they don't got much there either, not not without the help of FBI informants, FBI um, instigators, antagonizers, infiltrators. The FBI are the ones who should be in, who should be in jail for that and a host of other crimes. I mean, how many FBI agents are really like their job these days, working for the left wing moral morons that now run that agency? We'll get to how to deal with that down the road here. So anyway. Johnson says, quote, January 6, 2021 will never be forgotten. An infamous day in American history. Mega Republicans descended upon the Capitol, engaged in an insurrection. End quote. You idiot. Johnson doesn't know how to spell insurrection, much less the meaning of it. An insurrection is an attempt to overthrow a government by way and means of violence. The only one killed that day, the only one I'll just point this out because the press doesn't. It was by a black black cop shooting and killing an unarmed white woman. The others, ah, they died in a heart attack out in the street. Another one, something happened when he was in the parking lot. That's the one death you have. And an insurrection is by arms. They didn't come in with arms. The only arms were the Capitol Police. So you got these stinking morons like Johnson picking up on the venom and the vitriol, the vindictive evil just oozing from every orifice of Joe Biden's body 
the demon-possessed chief of this country, further encouraged by Hillary claiming there's a need to vote out every single Republican, the question then becomes, how do you deal with this? How do you... how? Do, how does the left actually? You know what? I'm going to flip this around. I, I've talked enough about what we need to do because it's the same every every week that I tell you. Right? Sit tall in the saddle. You ride for the brand. Stand up, not sit down. But stand up, fight, 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 like Jim Harbaugh. But when you have a left wing fanatical regime like the Biden regime weaponizing all the agencies of the federal government to target their enemies. When the federal government has become our own primary domestic enemy because it hates the country we've been, wanting to make the country more leftist, more globalist, more killing of unborn, more queer crap, wanting to reinstate the gods of Molech and Ashtoreth while we also uh, celebrate the recreation on various islands of Sodom and Gomorrah, or like Sodom and Gomorrah. What's their next move? What do they do next ahead of the elections to try to further alienate, isolate, marginalize the conservatives so that we can't win. Because if we don't win, we will never win. You see, Israel repentance never came uh, in any meaningful, large-scale way by ways of preaching. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They ultimately simply had to be judged over and over and over and over again. God bringing in various foreigners, slacking them, taking them away. There was one point where the siege in Jerusalem, God said, hey, you're going to be eating your children. That's right. Part of God's judgment was turning the inhabitants of Jerusalem into cannibals. You don't believe me. Well, you know what? I'll have to give you the scripture next week. I wasn't even planning to mention it. It's just, it's there. Plain as day. In Elizabethan English or otherwise. So, what do you do after this if you are on the left? Well, they're going to keep up this. And there are some polls that would seem to indicate that their behavior is working as they say and state that the margin between the right and the left in the upcoming election continues to decrease and that the Republican victories are not in the bag. Now, I've got a break coming up here. I actually don't want to launch into this next segment before the break. But the fact of the matter is that what is coming simply may be that which has always been. A judgment, notwithstanding repentance. People I know, I've listened to them. They said there's going to be a revival. We're going to turn around. Please, please, please do not confuse revival with the restoration of the country we once knew. And I'll give you one example. 
One of the greatest revivals that took place in the entire 19th century occurred during the Civil War when, get this, black preachers led revivals among Confederate troops. They don't talk about that much, do they? No, they did. An enormous number of Confederate troops got saved. Did the South rise again? No. Was their Confederate money worth anything? No. Did they lose the war? Yes. They, people might say, well, then why the revival didn't change anything. Yes, it did. The revival changed the hearts. The revival wasn't to prepare for a restoration of the South. The revival was simply to prepare those soldiers who were soon to die for heaven. Don't go away. Robin Walter will be right back. The Robin Walter Show is a listener-supported program. Your contribution goes to help as many people as possible to hear that the Word of God has answers to help you survive and even thrive in the dark days ahead in this country. We pledge to bring you the critical information you need to make informed decisions in this age where big tech and big media have conspired to rid our country of everything Christian. Please send your support to The Robin Walter Show. P.O. Box 99, Wickenburg, Arizona, 85358. Or go to robinwalter.net and use PayPal. That's The Robin Walter Show. P.O. Box 99, Wickenburg, Arizona, 85358. Or robinwalter.net and use PayPal. Thank you. I was chasing the sun on 101 somewhere around in tour. I lost the universal joint and I had to use my finger. This tall lady stopped and asked if I had plans for dinner. Said, no thanks, ma'am. Back home, we like the girls that sing soprano. Cause where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, trying to make a living. We are back. The Robin Walters Show. I want to thank uh, a listener, he knows who he is, uh, in Las Vegas, who reminded me of something from my past, my history. I was uh, not officially a history major in class, but I loved history. I still do. As the saying goes, those who refuse to learn from history are bound to repeat it. I particularly liked my classes dealing with World War I and World War II. And my professor at Ann Arbor was a man who, uh, at the time, he was probably in his 70s, and he was in Germany during World War I and World War II. Karl von Reichenbach. He wore a monocle. If this guy wasn't the real deal, there wasn't anything. I mean, he, he talked from firsthand knowledge kind of with his suspenders and his monocle and talking with great fervor and passion about World War I and then what led to it and the transition into World War II. And there was an event that occurred in the early days of Adolf Hitler, which is referred to as the Blood Purge or also known as the Night of the Long Knives. I'd forgotten about it till this particular listener just reminded me of that event, and my my I got the chills. 
because of the obvious comparison to what happened then and what's happening now. And so just bear with me a little bit. If I could give you a little bit of history. But as I share this with you, think in terms of transporting this story from the mid-1930s into our present day. Because in 1933, I think was the year that Hitler had become chancellor. But he didn't have the power that he wanted. Obviously, for a dictator, there's no such thing as too much power. Right? Sort of like, uh, what is it, Tim Baxter or something on uh, tool time, home improvement? Power. There's no such thing as more power. He was always going for more power. And, of course, blowing up whatever he, he put more power in ultimately blew up or caught fire. But anyway, for the dictator, there's no such thing as too much power. And two weeks ago, we talked about the Reichstag, the burning of the lower house of Germany's parliament, which was done by the Nazis, but blamed on the communists in an effort for the people to give the Nazis and i.e. Adolf Hitler more power. But I'd forgotten about the night of the long knives until this brother reminded me of it, and I just got the I got the goosebumps. So in the early thirties, as a result of the Treaty of Versailles which if you're in Kentucky, I love you guys, but it, the word is not Versailles. <laughs> There's a town in Kentucky. They call it Versailles there. But anyway, Versailles. I love you guys nonetheless. That's one of the reasons I love you, because you do that stuff. You don't care what anybody else thinks. You're a great state. But the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was limited as to how many troops it could have as a result of World War I. They were not allowed a standing army of more than 100,000. So what happened, because there was a limitation there, there was a paramilitary organization called the SA, which I'm not going to do what it's, there are two German words which I will massacre, we'll just call it the SA, which is, it wasn't official. So it was outside the bounds of the Treaty of Versailles. That organization grew at a, to its peak of about 1.5 million members. So here you go. you got the German army, or the German military total of 100,000. That's the maximum under the treaty. But you have an unofficial organization, which can grow apparently to any size, and they grow to a million five under the leadership of a man by the name of Ernst Rohm. R, not R-O-M-E, but R-O-H-M, if you want to look him up. And Ernst was a diehard communist, a friend of Hitler. Now, I, I, I'm going to give you a very brief little lesson in political philosophy here that when people say, well, so-and-so is a fascist and so-and-so is a communist, they ultimately make no difference. In the end, whoever's in charge can kill you without having to be um, brought before any tribunal. It's all what's called extrajudicial, extralegal. I mean, it's, it's, it's outside Justice, it's outside of what's legal. They just do whatever they want. The Communist Party, by doctrine, owns everything. Every means of production, every store, you are all slaves. In the fascist system, the fascists have absolute political power, but they choose to leave certain industries in place, 
and they don't touch the power of the elites that side with them. If they don't side with them, they end up getting killed. But they need the elites who have contact with the citizenry, and they need the factory owners and operators who uh, do a much better job of producing not only a better product but at a lower price than if it were under direct government supervision. So the essence of the, the only real difference between Nazism and communism, fascism and communism, is that under fascism there are private parties who are allowed to exist only because they can do the bidding of the dictator more efficiently than a totally government-run situation, as is the case in communism. But simply know, as I think I mentioned once, you start at 12 o'clock and the communist dial goes left, the, the fastest dial goes right, they grow apart only for a little while. When you get down to 6 o'clock, they meet and they're exactly alike because in the end, they have ultimately all power and they kill whomever they want, whenever they want. All right. There's the end of that lesson. Now, demonic. Because Satan likes control. Dictators like control. They're demon-possessed. That's kind of the way that it goes. And so, in the case of Germany, this rising SA, the paramilitary organization, became competitive with Hitler himself. That even though the general principles of the SA were to go out and intimidate, rough up, brutalize, vandalize stores and beat up the people, kill them, I guess, if they have to, of those who would oppose the Third Reich. Hitler was concerned that this entity had grown so large that it was undue competition with his own military. And the communists in the SA were largely devoted to simply making Germany a communist country, whereas Hitler, totally okay with the internal goals of communism, had, had a goal that the communists did not, and that was to export his dictatorship and domination to other countries. So the SA had no foreign aspirations. The Nazis clearly did. But the process internally was basically the same, ultimately to control everything. Hitler had to do something. So on the night of June 30th, 1934, the night of the long knives, it actually occurred over a three-day period, but he went out. The number of people who are executed is unknown. Some say it's an absolute minimum of 85 some have said north of 300. I've read some things that state that it's very likely that it could be as much as 1,000. And who did they kill? They killed anybody and everybody. Well, let me just state, they did kill some just some personal enemies. So this is Hitler, um, uh, Goering, and Himmler. Those are the three that are involved. And the goal is to kill Anybody and everybody heading up any organization that could pose political opposition to the regime. Are we starting to sound familiar here? Does this ring a bell? Now, Biden hasn't gone out and ordered executions through the DOJ. He thinks that he can do it by stealing 
having the FBI steal Mike Lindell's cell phone at a drive-through of a fast food restaurant and intimidate and ransack his home, Trump's, as well as 35 of his allies, listening to our conversations, this is a prelude. This is sort of the American version of the Night of the Long Knives, but it's not going to end here if it doesn't work. If it doesn't work. Well, the blood purge by Hitler was the, the, the quickest and the most efficient thing to do to eliminate political opposition. Understand that what the Democrats under Joe Biden and his demon-possessed regime are doing is everything they can conceivably get away with at this point to purge the political environment of political enemies. That's why stupid people like Hank Johnson shoot off at the mouth saying the things they do. Why? Because Joe Derfur Biden shot off his mouth in the blood-red speech of his, a demon-possessed speech. They, they, the underlings, are energized by the actions of their superior. It's sort of like Satan getting enraged. What do you think he does to the demons that are underneath him? Do they feel empowered to be enraged? Well, of course they do. And so what we have here is... Um, and ultimately, the 1.5 million paramilitary organization, and I should have said this earlier, they were known as the Brown Shirts. The Brown Shirts. But here's the deal. Joe Biden's got his own Brown Shirts. And some of them are, are sort of paramilitary, if you want to make the equation. The media, the left-wing, left-wing libtards, the left-wing monsters that love communism, fascism, they don't care as long as they're in charge. He's got those. But here's the difference, the one difference between what is happening today through the Department of Injustice, the FBI, etc. is that in 1934, the brown shirts were voluntary. The brown shirts did not receive any pay. They weren't officially organized by the government. The problem here is today's brown shirts are government employees. Yeah. So, where do we go with this? What do we do? Gosh, I've got so much I want to get to, but I've got to finish this, and there are some things that are happening that I, th I think we just have, a, have to have a clear understanding of a few things here that will give us a clue as to how to respond. And first, I want to back up to something I've said multiple times before, but I have to launch this final segment of the program with this comment. Donald Trump, for all of his pluses, had some negatives, as we all do. We all got blind spots, right? He got sucked in by Anthony Fauci. He thought he could actually trust uh, uh, Tony. Uh, Tony, I'm even shorter in my platform shoes than oh, the singer of the Four Seasons. Can't even think of his name now. 
Anyway, that was a, I shouldn't have digressed. When I do that, sometimes I can't get back to my topic. I lose where I am. But the way by which you drain the swamp is not the way at all that Trump undertook it. He was mistaken. If there was one single mistake that Trump made that dwarfs all of the others, including drinking some of the Kool-Aid about the vaccine, he actually thought, in this respect, he's a smart man, but you can be smart and naive. You can be naive about just how deep the swamp is, that he actually was naive enough to believe that the CDC was there to promote the overall health of the public and had no political agenda attached to their job description. He believed that. But the answer to this was a fault of, I mean, the problem here actually goes deeper and it's the biggest single fault of Donald Trump. And it's huge. And that was in the four years that he was involved as president, he simply signed on to bigger and bigger budgets. The budget just kept growing. Not like it did under Barack Hussein Obama, and not like it's doing under Obama 2.0, Joey Biden. No. They both make... Obama and Biden both make Trump look like a spendthrift. But nonetheless, the debt grew, the budgets he kept signing off on. That was his mistake. I have said for years on this program, and I'm going to say it again, if you're going to drain the swamp, what makes a swamp a swamp? No, time's up. The water. You, If you're going to drain the swamp, what are you doing? You're draining the water. The water is what makes a swamp a swamp. And it sits there stagnant, and it becomes putrid, and it breeds flies, mosquitoes, who knows what, what, what diseases percolate in a stagnant old swamp. The water of a swamp politically is the money that sits there and, and is resupplied every single year to a bureaucracy that's outgrown its pants about a hundred times. The only way you can drain a swamp is to drain the water. And to drain the water, you have to cut it off. The only way the swamp will ever be drained. I promise you, this is it. There's not going to be any revival in the swamp. Is to have a president who will not sign off on any budget, any budget that involves for increases. And in fact... Let the government be shut down. If Congress does not produce a budget that provides for a 60% reduction in the funding of the FBI, an 80% reduction in the funding of the DOJ, or actually call it the DOI, Department of Injustice, and about a 40 to 50% decrease in the funding for the IRS. Taxes must be collected. I understand that. I get that. There are crooks. They have to be found out. They have to be pursued. But not so well-funded that they have the luxury of being used as a political tool like dare fear Obama used the IRS. You have to cut them off at the knees. 
with a financial knife. That's the only thing that will work. There needs to be this enormous glut of homes for sale in the D.C. and Fairfax, Virginia area because everybody's lost their job. And if that doesn't happen, there is no hope. You cannot just change a few people at the top and suppose that the culture of that organization will be changed. We know that, and how do I know that? Biblically, when Josiah came to be king, the best king Israel ever had, better than David, Bible says so. But he, and while he imp- uh, imposed and brought in certain reforms, he at the top was not enough to change the culture, the religious idolatry that existed in the ranks that had been infused there, encouraged, funneled, fueled, and subsidized by his evil predecessors. No Donald Trump. I don't care if he came back with all the gifts of Jesus and Paul and all of it. If there's not a cultural change, they can only do so much. The problem lives on And the basis for judgment upon the United States lives on. Okay, point number two. Everyone, everyone, everyone has to start paying taxes. You say, well, you're going to say, oh, some some mother who's on welfare and gets $24,000 a year in tax and should be paid taxes. Yes. Yes, pay, pay 10% out of the money that you didn't earn. Is it so unjust to require people to pay taxes on that which is a gift? Come on. We've even had gift tax. And we have gift tax in this country. But when you have no skin in the game, no skin in the game, and the number of non-tax-paying citizens is growing by percentage, you reach the point where it's irreversible. The takers exceed the providers. I don't know if it was Jefferson. I want to say it was Jefferson, but I'm not sure who was said that the biggest problem with democracy is it has and bears within itself the seed of its own destruction. Meaning, the ability for people to vote to themselves the assets and the money of somebody else becomes irreversible if everybody votes And the takers now hit 51%. It's over and done. Everybody has to pay taxes on their income. Make it a flat tax. Somebody who makes $200,000, they pay $20,000. Somebody who makes $20,000 pays $2,000. Proportionate. That is biblical. A flat tax is biblical. I'm not going to get into it. I don't have time in the last four minutes here to go to the scripture. But the Democrats know that if they can create more takers than producers, and they are the the providers for whether it's free cell phones under Barack Obama and free this, free student education, student debt forgiveness, you will have takers exceeding providers, and now all the takers are beholden to you, the Democrats, not reversible. The only way that can be reversed is for states like Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, probably not Kansas. They surprise me. South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, Iowa, 
Missouri, Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, maybe, maybe not Georgia, certainly Florida, Florida uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, maybe Indiana, to leave the union with a new tax structure. Everybody pays a tax. And why? Because if everybody pays a tax, everybody, everybody has skin in the game. And if everybody paid a tax, everybody would be complaining about how their tax dollars are being wasted. And guess what? If everybody paid taxes, we would have the most conservative electorate in the history of the United States. Point number three, my final point today. I alluded to earlier, to, uh, earlier in the program how the polls seem to be shifting because of this just incessant, overpowering dumping of false media, the, the, the creators of misinformation and disinformation being the Democrats generated at the White House and government agencies, but with the mainstream media being their water-carrying boys. The polls, even good polls like Rasmussen, probably the best poll of any of them, has indicated that it appears that the strategy of the left is working. The continuous intimidation, ostracization, marginalization, berating, browbeating of everything and everybody conservative and Republican is actually changing some of the independents back to the Democrat political line. I trust Rasmussen, but here's one thing I want to point out. We know that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil occupies the Democrat Party. He's working on the Republicans. Don't get me wrong. He's not giving them up, and then he's working on them too. But he runs and controls the Democrat Party. If you can steal an election, then you don't have to kill and destroy. They're trying to, to kill and destroy opposition right now before the election, but if this election goes the wrong way and they simply steal another way by illegal use of public funds, uh, the use of every government agency to, to recruit voters, which Biden gave an executive order on. Every government agency is supposed to be involved in getting voters to the voting box. It doesn't matter. Just vote. Yeah, it does matter. If you're a Nimrod or you don't care, you're apathetic, don't vote. You're not qualified. Here's what I'm hoping is actually happening, and it's only a hope. My hope is if somebody, well, first of all, somebody called me on the phone wanting to know my opinion on this or that, I'm not giving them any opinion on anything. I just say, hey, you know what? If you want to know my opinion on something, go listen to the Robin Walter Show on the podcast. You'll get all you want to know. But for other people who are not engaged in this kind of activity, would you, would you volunteer your conservative opinions to an unknown pollster? I would think not, and I would hope not. So what I'm hoping is that the people who are disproportionately actually responding to the polls are the ones who think that they're on the side of the majority, the Democrats, the wise ones, the conservatives, the Christians are not voicing their opinion when they are not called upon to do so, no, have no obligation to do so, and simply would be concerned about making them the next target, mega target of a left-wing government. That's what I would hope. 
is the case. We're just being quiet about it. And that the polls are not really reflective. If the polls are correct, we may be toast. But does it change what you and I have to do? No, of course not. It doesn't. You need to sit tall in the saddle, America. Remember that you ride to the brand, the brand of Jesus Christ. God bless you. See you next week.